Jesus. Join me in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, as we continue to look at really a precious chapter in God's word, it's one of the most comforting chapters that you could ever read throughout the scriptures. John chapter 14, where Jesus promises his apostles, and by extension us as well, he promises that the inevitable trouble that permeates our world need not become the trouble of our hearts, that the trouble outside does not need to become the trouble inside. Promise after promise of Christ telling us he will give peace where there is fear. He will give calmness where there is chaos and assurance where there is uncertainty. It begins in verse 1. This is the controlling call of Christ. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be stirred by the fears of this world or agitated by the anxieties of our day or unnerved by the sin of our time. Instead, respond in faith at the end of verse One, believe also in me. Believe my promises to you. And from verse 2 and following through the end of the chapter, Jesus gives 12 reasons, 12 supernatural promises that we can cling to, that we are called to believe in order to remain calm in the midst of angst and hopeful in the midst of sorrow. These are all promises of inner peace, Supernatural peace. How supernatural? Drop down to verse 27. And Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, my peace I give to you. This is the peace that comes from Christ. It's the peace that characterized Christ. This is the same peace Jesus says we can have the same peace that allowed Jesus to sleep soundly in the midst of a storm. Believe me, I'll give that peace to you. Same peace that will allow Jesus as we move in chapter 18 or so. The same peace that allows Jesus to stay faithful as he stands trial before his enemies. That peace, I'll give it to you. It's my peace. It's my gift. Finish verse 27. Not, not as the world gives it. This is a special peace, supernatural calm. This is why Paul could pray, now may the Lord of peace. May the Lord of peace himself continually, day after day, moment after moment, grant you peace in how many circumstances? Every one of them. Every one. Think of Philippians chapter four and the peace, here's the promise, and the peace of God, peace that comes from God, not of this world peace, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension This is an inner tranquility that cannot be explained by worldly means. This is peace that is not fleeting. It's not deficient. 
No, it's powerful peace that will guard, verse 7, that will guard and, and keep and protect you. Protect your hearts. Do not let your heart be troubled. Paul says there's a peace that will guard your hearts. It's a needed promise, a needed reminder in a world that offers everything but peace. So we've looked at these promises. Again, there are 12 total. We've looked at the first four heart-calming promises that Jesus gives his people here. We first saw the promise of heaven. That's verses two through seven, the promise of heaven. In verses eight through 11, you have the promise of eternal security that calms our soul. In verse 12, we're given the promise of fruitfulness in ministry. So often fear can paralyze us. But Christ says, I'm using you. I'm making you fruitful. And then a couple weeks ago, we saw verses 13 through 15, the promise of answered prayer. Each a heart-calming promise that eases a troubled heart. So it brings us now to the fifth promise Jesus gives. And this is by far the most important promise Jesus makes. This is the most theologically rich promise he will give in this entire chapter. I would venture to say it's the most shocking promise. The most shocking promise. Even more shocking than what he said in verse 12 when he said, you will do greater works, greater works than Christ, more shocking than that. This fifth promise is the central promise around which every other heart-calming promise for peace is built. It's the most glorious promise there is in chapter 14. So I want you to see why this is the central promise. I, I hope to show you that this is a beautiful passage, a beautiful saying from Christ, just how beautiful the promise is, the passage is. So Jesus' words in John 14 are what is called a chiasm, a chiasm. It's a literary device, structure, tool, that uses a repetition of similar words or ideas and organize them in parallel fashion. So the first part will mirror the second part. It's a chiasm. You can think of it in terms of a sideways V, a sideways V. It's structured so that everything is moving towards that center. That's the central promise, the central idea the key point. And so it's a mirror. What takes place on the front end is on the back end. Now, it's kind of abstract, though. I mean, we don't think in terms of sideways Vs, right? And we're Baptists. Well, we think in terms of what? Food. Okay, so think of a chiasm in terms of a sandwich, all right, a sandwich. And the best sandwich at that, it's a BLT sandwich, who doesn't like bacon here, right? All right, it's a BLT. On each side of the sandwich, now everybody's like, oh, I can follow along with the sermon. This is pretty good. On each side of the sandwich, there are two pieces of bread. It holds the sandwich together, right? Two pieces of bread. Then there's the lettuce, but no one, 
is eating the BLT for the lettuce. No one. You then have the tomato. That's not the star of the sandwich. You have some mayonnaise somewhere in there, but you eat the BLT for the center. You eat it for the bacon. That's the most essential part. All right, now take that to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is a chiastic BLT, okay? It begins with the bread. It begins in verse one, which then is repeated in verse 27. You can look at it. Verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. Verse 27, do not let your heart be troubled. It's a mirror. It's parallel. That's what's holding chapter 14 together. Everything in this passage, everything is about not letting our hearts be troubled. Well, we then come to the lettuce. Verses 10 and verse 24. Verse 10, verse 24 where Jesus says similar things. Look at verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. When I speak, they're not just my words, they're the Father's words. It's what gives weight. I'm speaking on behalf of my Father. Well, look at verse 24. Jesus repeats himself. The word which you hear is not mine, not mine only but the Father who sent me. It's the lettuce. Leads to the tomato, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But now look at verse 21. It's a repeat. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who what? Who loves me. It's the mirror. It's the parallel. This is all by design. Christ is is structuring these promises in such a way to lead us to the middle section, the center, the center promise. And that center promise is in verses 16 through 20. Verses 16 through 20, the promise to send the Holy Spirit. But even here, we can whittle it down further. Notice verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will be given. Notice, the world cannot receive him, but you know him. Repeated very similar in verse 19. The world will no longer see me, but you will see, you will know me. Again, it's parallel. It's the mayonnaise of the BLT. So the first half of chapter 14 mirrors the second half of chapter 14. And all of it is heading to the central promise, the central verse. That is verse 18. That is the bacon of the chapter. Read verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's the heart of all of this. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That is the greatest fear of the apostles. They know Jesus is about to leave them. He's predicted it clearly. They feel like they will be left as spiritual orphans. They're troubled. They're afraid. No one's going to plead our case after Jesus leaves. 
They're fearful that no one will give them the provision or the love, the guardianship, the protection, the comfort they need. During the first century, the two most vulnerable groups of people were orphans and widows. Orphans and widows. No one would plead their case. James 1, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Even today, if you've seen the pictures of war, you see orphans left. Orphans are pictures of human need at its deepest level. It's the fear of being left alone, the feel of being deserted, the need to be cared for, advocated for, protected. And all that's in the physical realm. How much more in the spiritual realm? It's even more severe to be a spiritual orphan especially in a world dominated by sin where Satan roams like a lion looking for someone to devour. But Jesus' promise, the main promise here is that none of his followers will ever be spiritual orphans. None will ever be abandoned by God. None will ever lack the love and care and comfort and protection of a savior. In John 1, we were given this promise. John chapter 1 and verse 12. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, adopted into the family of God. We are not orphans in this world. We never will be if we are Christ's. We're children in God's family. Look back to chapter 13. In the midst of predicting that Jesus is going to leave the apostles, notice what he says in verse 33. He calls his apostles little children. Little children, you're mine. You're in the family of God. Christ has been their spiritual father for three years. Jesus has fulfilled Isaiah 9. He has been the Messiah who would be wonderful counselor, helper, eternal father, caretaker, protector. He's loved them. They failed him. He's loved them. He's guarded them. He's provided for them. They've experienced the highest privilege of salvation. They are members of God's household. They've had Christ by their side, but now they are on the precipice of Jesus leaving them and they feel alone. This is the root of our fear, isn't it? The root of our fear, the thought that we will be left alone. They feel like they're being abandoned. Again, they feel like spiritual orphans. There's a dread. They know their weakness. They also know their gospel calling, tie. They know the power of the enemy against them. 
And thus Jesus offers them this central, most important, most theological, shocking, glorious promise in this chapter. Because we are God's children, we will never be orphaned, ever. We will always have a guardian of our souls. We will always have a comforter for our weaknesses. We will always have a spiritual father who loves us, always. And notice verse 18. This is a very personal promise. Jesus says, I will come to you. Yes, I'm leaving you. Again, we saw that in chapter 13. Jesus says, I'm with you only a little while longer, verse 33. A little while longer, 10 hours max. I'm with you only a little while. Beginning of chapter 14, verse two, I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's the cross. I'm going to the cross. You can't follow me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. But my leaving you is not the end of my relationship with you. I will come to you. And this is not just for the apostles. Some take this and say, well, maybe Jesus is talking about a resurrection appearance. Christ is going to go to the cross, he's going to be buried, resurrected, and then he'll come to them. Resurrection appearance. That's not what Jesus is referring to here. Why? Because that would only be a temporary coming to them. That would be a 40-day period of time between the resurrection and the ascension. All that would do is postpone Jesus leaving them again as orphans. The reference here, it's a better appearance, a better coming, better than the post-resurrection appearance. This is Jesus coming to his apostles by means of his Holy Spirit. Christ is talking about the Spirit's presence in us. And he's saying the Spirit's presence in us is what will mediate the Son's presence with us. And this will not be temporary. The Holy Spirit is an eternal gift. Look at verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, comforter, guardian that he may be with you for how long? Forever. Forever. This is an astounding claim of Christ. He's claiming deity here. He's claiming a unity with the Spirit, the same divine, eternal, Holy Spirit that created Genesis chapter 1. He's hovering over the waters, that same eternal Spirit's. Claiming equality with the same spirit, a unity, the same spirit who brought divine regeneration and condemnation in Genesis chapter 6, the same spirit who gave supernatural giftings throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus says that he and the spirit are so united, so unified, 
They share the same nature so much so that when the Spirit comes to us, it is the same as Christ coming to us. In verse 9, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. That's how unified they are. Well, now Jesus says, if you're indwelt by the Spirit, then you're indwelt by Him, by Christ. It's an astounding claims of deity here. To quote one commentator, he writes this. Jesus is assuring his followers, us, assuring his followers that whatever may occur in our experience in the world, we will never be on our own. Just let that sink in. We will never be on our own. We will not be left desolate. Why? Because Christ will continue to shepherd us and protect us through his spirit. No wonder Jesus says in verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. Why would a heart filled with the spirit and protected by the spirit and guarded by the spirit, why would that be filled with fear? We have the eternal spirit of Christ or doubt. John Owen, that great Puritan is right when he said God's presence in love is sufficient to rebuke all anxiety and fears and give in the midst of them joy. It's a matter of believing these promises though, of clinging to them. This is why Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption. We will not be spiritual orphans. We have the spirit of adoption. The spirit brings us to Christ and unites us to Christ. Spirit opens our eyes to Christ and forges that intimacy with Christ. He gives us the mind of Christ, empowers us to live for Christ, sanctifies us into the image of Christ, produces in us the fruit of Christ. He allows us access to the throne room of Christ. And he intercedes for us along with Christ. To be indwelt by the Spirit is, they're so unified, is to be indwelt by Christ. Now for the apostles. For the apostles, this promise, for the Spirit coming to them, they had to wait for it. They had to wait until Pentecost. They had to wait until Jesus ascended to his Father. For us, we don't have to wait. The moment, the moment we come to Christ in saving faith, the moment our heart is regenerated by the Spirit, at that moment, the Spirit of Christ indwells us. And the Spirit of Christ seals us and unites us to our Savior forever. Let's put words on this. Here's promise number five. The central heart-calming promise, promise number five, in a world filled with troubles and fears and sorrows and disappointments and doubts and anxieties, promise number five, be comforted. Be comforted because we have been given the Holy Spirit forever. 
We've been given the Holy Spirit forever. Read verses 16 through 20. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will, through the spirit, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Again, the most theological of all the promises. Astounding. All right, let's unpack this. We'll unpack it this week and next week. Two questions. Two questions. The first question is, who is the Holy Spirit? According to Jesus here, who is the Holy Spirit? And then the second question is, once the Spirit is given to us, what does he do for us? What does he do for the believer? Why do we find comfort in him? So who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do for the believer? We'll answer the first question this morning. Who is the Holy Spirit according to Christ? Three descriptions, number one. Description number one. The Spirit is the Son and the Father's gift of love. The Spirit is the Son and the Father's gift of love to his people. Verse 16, I, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, future, I will do this. Christ is promising to do something when he finally ascends to heaven. He's promising to offer the Father a future prayer on our behalf. He's going to go to the Father, verse 12. And the first petition on our behalf, the first petition that Jesus will make to his Father is that the Father send the Spirit. First petition, first prayer. This is how much Jesus loves us. Why do I say love is motivating this? Well, look at verse 15 that comes before this. Verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's repeated at the very end of this section, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Well, here now in verse 16, Jesus explains how he will show his love for us. We love him by obeying him. He loves us by petitioning his father to send the spirit to us. Christ will go to the cross in love, yes. Christ goes to the cross because he loves us, but that's not where Jesus' love for us ends. Spirit is a gift of love from the Son. He continues to love us even when he's in heaven. 
But lest we think that the Son has to twist the arm of God to send the Spirit. Continue verse 16. He, speaking of the Father, he will give you another helper. The Father is not begrudging in sending us the Spirit. The Spirit is also the Father's overflow of love for us. Drop down to verse 26. Jesus promises the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. The Spirit is also the Father's gift to us. Look at chapter 15, verse 26, 15, 26. Another promise, when the helper comes, whom I will send out of my love for you, I send him. But notice, I send to you from the Father, an overflow of love from the Father. That is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. The Father gives us the Spirit just as much as the Son gives us the Spirit. And so begin to grasp now the extent of love the Father and the Son have for us. The Spirit's coming is a unified work between the two. It's a unified work. The Spirit is the Son and the Father's gift of grace. Because when they send the Spirit, we have not earned the Spirit in any way. It's a gift of grace. And we have not deserved the Spirit in any way. It's an answer to the Son's prayer. The Spirit is the greatest and most intimate gift the Father and Son could ever give to us. This is why I say this is shocking, the most shocking promise. The Father and the Son give us the third person of the Trinity. They give us eternal God. They give us their own presence. The Spirit is a Trinitarian gift of love. And the application here is tremendous. If you have ever been tempted to doubt God's love for you or his care for you or his concern for you, if you ever think of yourself as alone, abandoned, deserted, all by yourself in this world, all by yourself in those, those difficulties that you find yourself in, those fears. Remember the divine spirit who has been given to you in love. He indwells you. Think of Romans 5. The love of God. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He's the gift of love to us. The Holy Spirit who is given to us. Again, the Spirit is a Trinitarian gift that overflows out of the love of the Father and the Son for us. That's the first description. There's a second. All this heart calming. Description number two, the spirit is our paraclete, our paraclete. 
And I use that word paraclete here because that is the word that Jesus uses in verse 16 to describe the Spirit. It's translated as helper in the New American Standard, helper. It's the Greek word parakletos, paraclete. And it's a term that really cannot be translated with a single English word. It's so broad, so broad in its meaning. In its broadest sense, parakletos means one who assists or one who comes alongside. Versions of the Bible vary in the translation. Here again, helper, other versions, counselor, Advocate, companion, friend, intercessor, teacher, comforter, there's more. Why so many different ways to translate this one word? Because the word is so broad, it can't be limited to one word. It encompasses all of them. And we see the broadness of the meaning here. By the way, Jesus describes this paraclete. Notice, Jesus does not call the Spirit just a paraclete. He calls the Spirit another, another parakletos, another in the sense of another of the same kind. This is a second paraclete, another of the same kind. This is another helper, like the helper you have already experienced. This is another comforter, advocate. Who's the original paraclete that Jesus is referring to? It's himself. I'm sending you another one of the same kind. Again, this is how unified the Son and the Spirit are. Jesus is not promising to send us an impersonal power. That gives no comfort. He's promising to send us a person, a person like him, a person who will come to our aid like he came to his apostles' aid, a person who will assist us and help us just like Jesus assisted the apostles and helped the apostles. Far from being a lesser member of the Trinity, The Spirit is the perfect substitute for Jesus. The perfect substitute now that Jesus sits at his Father's right hand. You could even say, you could even say that the Spirit is the better substitute. The better substitute. Why? Because now Christ, through his Spirit, can assist every believer throughout the world, not just the twelve while he walked this earth. He's the better substitute. This is what Jesus means in chapter 16. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, your benefit. If I was to ask the question, would you rather have Jesus here physically sitting next to you in church? Would you rather have that or the spirit indwelling you? Most of us would probably say, we would prefer Jesus. And Jesus says, no, it's to your advantage, your profit that I go away. How can this be so, Jesus? Why? Why is it better? 
For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, the spirit will not come to you. You need me to go. You need the spirit to indwell you. Because if or when I go, I will send him to you. This is how precious the spirit is to us. We lose nothing without Christ being by our side. We lose nothing without Christ being by our side. The Spirit takes Jesus' place. And he does for us, he does for us what Jesus did for his apostles. He's another paraclete. Let me just list some of these. Like Christ did for his apostles, the Spirit gives us boldness. Boldness when we bear witness for Christ. He's another helper. He's another, just like Christ did. That's the promise of chapter 15, verse 26. When the helper comes, he will testify about me. How? How does the helper testify about Christ? Here's how. When you testify also, the Spirit will give us a boldness to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior. Like Christ taught his apostles, the Spirit teaches us. That's the promise of John 16, 13. 16, 13. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The Spirit teaches us, illumines our minds. Like Christ, the Spirit protects our souls and guards our hearts. Ephesians 1, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Like Christ, the Spirit strengthens our endurance and our faithfulness. It's Romans 8, 26, the Spirit helps in our weakness. Like Christ, the Spirit prays for God's people. Again, Romans 8, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You understand, the Son is praying for us and the Spirit is praying for us. Romans eight twenty seven goes on, he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He emboldens us, he teaches us, he protects us, he strengthens us, he prays for us. This is why the Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. He does for us what Jesus did for the apostles, or the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, or the Spirit of His Son. It's a Spirit today, right now, within us. It is a Spirit who is continuing Christ's paracleting work. Far from being orphaned, Far from being orphaned as Christ is now in heaven, we have been given the perfect substitute, fully equipped for every need we have. One author put it this way, the successor Jesus has appointed is not ill-suited to his task. Far from it. 
He is to be to us what Jesus was to his own disciples during the days of his flesh. What an amazing gift, gift of love. Connect this back to verse one. Do not let your heart be troubled. Why? Because Christ has given you the perfect paraclete, perfect substitute. Which leads into a third description here. Third description of the Holy Spirit. Number three, the Spirit is God's gift to us forever. The Spirit is God's gift to us forever. If the Spirit could ever be removed, what I've just said in the promises that Christ has just made, meaningless, meaningless. But when the Son prays for the Father to give us His Spirit, the Father gives Him and will never take Him back. Finish verse 16. He, the Spirit, may be with you. This is my prayer, my petition, that he will be with you, every believer, no exception, that he will be with you forever. Eistan Iona, into the age. Same phrase to describe heaven, the eternality of heaven. He'll be with you forever. This is eternal assurance. The Spirit is God's everlasting pledge that we right now and always will belong to him. We read in Psalm 51, 11, David say, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That is never a prayer we need to offer, ever. The Spirit is no momentary gift. In fact, look at verse 17, the end of it. The Spirit is not merely given to be with us. No, He's given to be in us. He will be in you, always active within us, always sealing us until the day of redemption. Always sanctifying us into the image of Christ. Always allowing only that which is for our good What is Jesus promising here? Jesus is promising that the Spirit will be the fulfillment of that great new covenant promise. Ezekiel 36. Yahweh says, I will put my Spirit within you. Jesus says, I will send you my Spirit. I will put my Spirit within you. I will cause you and he will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I will never take him away. Again, Yahweh promises this. Christ is of the nature of Yahweh as is the Father. So I hope you can start to see why this is the central, most theological most pressing promise of this entire chapter. The Father and the Son are giving us their presence in us. The Spirit is the greatest gift, the perfect substitute for Christ. Again, connect this back to verse one. 
Do not let your heart become troubled. Why? For the Spirit is the gift of love from both the Father and the Son to you. Do not let your heart be troubled because you've been given the perfect paraclete, counselor, teacher, protector, intercessor for every burden we face. Do not let your heart be troubled because the Spirit will never be taken away from us. Why would a heart filled with the Spirit ever be filled with fear and doubt? And yet, Jesus is just getting started with this promise. All of that is from verse 16. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus then expands on all of this. And he answers the question, what does the Spirit now do for us? That's who the Spirit is. I'm promising that he's going to do something for my people, and it's extraordinary. That's where we'll pick it up next week. Father, you have given us tremendous promises in this chapter. No wonder, no wonder you say that you give peace not as the world gives. You give us the eternal spirit to indwell us and sanctify us and seal us. How merciful you are to us, how gracious and how loving. Lord, may you grant to us the needed faith to believe these promises. Faith to believe that you have given these promises to every believer. Yes, we fail. We don't obey in order to believe these. You have given these to us in grace. May we be thankful for your graciousness and mercy to us. And Lord, as we remember as a church body this morning, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ now, may we be humbled by the depth of your love, the depth of your mercy and grace and faithfulness to fulfill your promises for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.